Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? Oh, just bracing for more lockdowns just in time for the holidays. How about you, Leslie? Oh, my God, the same. It's so stressful. All I want to do is see family, and it's just, it's so... Ah. Wear a mask, stay home, social distance, be careful. Ah, we don't we don't want this to be happening next Thanksgiving, folks. Come no, on. please. Ah, let's yeah. get to business, though. Yeah, it's been a, another busy week. Leading off this week in headlines... On the renewal front, Netflix has picked up Space Force for a second season with the Steve Carell comedy getting a creative reboot and a new filming location as the streaming giant looks to cut its expensive budget and allow the Greg Daniels comedy time to grow. Elsewhere, Hulu has picked up comedy Woke for a second season. And you can listen to our interviews with the creatives behind both shows in episodes 67 and 85, respectively. In new series pickups, ABC is getting a jump on next season and has gone straight to series on an untitled comedy from Modern Family co-creator Chris Lloyd, starring Alec Baldwin and Kelsey Grammer as former roommates. Hilarious. Elsewhere. What could go wrong? (laughs) Elsewhere, DMZ, the DC comics inspired drama starring Rosario Dawson and Benjamin Bratt, has been picked up to series at HBO Max. And Netflix has ordered The G Word with Adam Conover, a blend of sketch comedy and documentary series that goes inside the world of government. The Obamas executive produce. Meanwhile, Terrence Winter has departed as showrunner on the Batman TV spinoff for HBO Max after what sources describe as creative differences with producers, including Matt Reeves. And speaking of Terrence Winter, he is teaming with Alicia Vicklander for a TV reboot of Dial M for Murder that is being designed with a female focus and as a starring vehicle for the Tomb Raider actress. In casting news, Nick Offerman and Mary Louise Parker will play Colin Kaepernick's parents in the Netflix series Colin in Black and White. At Apple, Hassan Minhaj has joined the cast of The Morning Show for season two. And in case you didn't already know, Patrick Dempsey has returned to Grey's Anatomy and will appear in multiple episodes this season. And this week in scripted musical chairs, Tony Hale comedy Mysterious Benedict Society has moved from Hulu to Disney Plus, while the Michael Chiklis drama Coyote has been shifted from Paramount Network to CBS All Access. In reality TV news, Fox has revived Name That Tune, despite having that Shazam thing that's already Name That Tune. But this one will be hosted by Jane Krakowski and will feature Randy Jackson as its band leader. Dog. 
Elsewhere, the toy maker Mattel <laughs> is developing a reality game show based on the popular card game Uno. Dan, okay. draw four. <clears throat> Reverse. <laughs> on the development front, ABC is teaming with Lee Daniels to develop a reboot of Waiting to Exhale. And wrapping things up, Stranger Things executive producer Sean Levy has inked a new nine-figure film and TV overall deal with Netflix. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, HBO Max is taking some bold swings in an effort to grow its subscriber base. With the pandemic's third wave or second wave or fourth wave or continuation of its first wave still in effect, Warner Brothers announced this week that the long-delayed Wonder Woman sequel, that's Wonder Woman 1984, would debut in U.S. theaters and on HBO Max at the same time on Christmas Day. In international markets where HBO Max is not yet available, it will bow in theaters on December 16th. So, Leslie, this is this is really a big deal. Uh, break down the logistics for us. Yeah, I mean, you just laid it all, all out. It's basically a massive, massive feature film coming to streaming at a time when most theaters in the U.S. are closed. And make no mistake, Dan, this is a big deal and it is a play to bring subscribers to HBO Max. This was going to be a probably a billion dollar movie at the box office in a pre-COVID world. And now Warner Media is looking at this and saying, we can use Wonder Woman to drive subs, to get more people to pay $15 a month to sign up for HBO Max, which is Warner Media as a, a massive company, the biggest priority across the entire company. So unlike Mulan, you can watch Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max on Christmas Day if you're an HBO Max subscriber with no additional cost. And remember, Disney Plus charged, in addition to the subscription to Disney Plus, they added on a $30 fee to watch Mulan. So Wonder Woman 1984, you can watch for the cost of $15 for signing up and it will be on the streaming service for a month after which it'll be in theaters. And then my question, which we don't know the answer to just yet, is what other windows is Warner Media going to look at to try and monetize this to, to make up what probably would have been a, bi a billion dollar franchise here? you know, like that, that lost money has got to, you know, ha has to come from somewhere. So basically what we're seeing here is HBO Max and Warner Media and all the filmmakers saying, we know people want to see this movie, that the release date's been shifted so many times they lost track. We're going to use this to boost our, to bolster our streaming service, to make people sign up. And, you know, remember Disney also put Hamilton on its streaming service for free and, and it's got some kind of subscri subscriber gains too. So look, when you're paying $15 a month and you've got, you know, f you know, Jason Kalar, Warner Media CEO said 4 million people went to see Wonder Woman, the first movie, the day it opened in theaters. So if you take even a quarter of that, right, take say 1 million people sign up to HBO Max, that's still $15 million at a time when you're in a pandemic and who knows what kind of box office grosses you're going to get from Wonder Woman and when 90% of the theaters or whatever the percentages are closed and no one feels safe going to the movies. I certainly don't. And, you know, so it's, it's a major risk and you're forgoing major profits 
but you're doing it to bolster your biggest priority, getting people to sign up for HBO Max. That's why you're seeing shows like the Batman spinoff, right? That's the strategy that Disney is using. You will, you love all these Marvel and Star Wars movies. Great. Come and sign up for our streaming service. You're going to get TV versions of those same things, except now with this, you're getting the actual big kahuna, Wonder Woman, uh, you know, first run on the streaming service. So it's super interesting. And, you know, there was also, you know, in less quiet news here. Um, HBO Max also this week posted the pilot of its Kate, uh, of its Kaylee Cuoco led thriller, The Flight Attendant, online for free a week before it premieres in the same bid to to woo subscribers. So after the series bows November 26 on HBO Max, the pilot will also air on HBO proper, HBO on demand and the following day on TBS. Uh, plus, I, I think it's like airing like November 30th on basic cable. These are efforts that Warner Media is making across its portfolio to bring in subs. That's the company's priority. That's why Wonder Woman's on streaming. But yeah, it'll be super interesting to see how it's received. And if people pirate it, if if it goes on, if it's successful, how many subscribers stick around, what the churn rate is after Wonder Woman disappears for the first month, if people sample the service for a month and then cancel, it'll be very interesting to see how it all shakes out. I, I think that HBO Max is in a different position than Disney Plus. And I think if you look at the Disney Plus subscriber numbers, uh, I think there has been enough evidence now so far that Disney Plus has gotten these little spikes whenever they've had these notable windows of new programming. You know, obviously the Hamilton one was the biggest, but there was also a spike tied to that I saw tied to the Beyonce concert film, not concert film, uh, video what essay, whatever it is that Beyonce does. And then, of course, there was another one just last month when The Mandalorian returned. So I think that there is definitely some evidence and Disney Plus does its own weird thing because they simply haven't had enough original programming for there to be a consistent line of subscribers who just stick with it. And whether or not that's a problem for them, I don't know. But guess what? You're going to see another spike when WandaVision comes in January. But the thing about HBO Max to me that has always been fascinating from the very beginning is a lot of you out there have HBO Max and you don't know you have HBO Max. And that much more than the $15 a month charge is what this is all about. It's about getting people to figure out that they already pay money for HBO Max, which speaks one more time. And we have talked about this extensively to how horribly HBO and Warner Brothers and HBO Max did at messaging who had this service when it launched just wretchedly. So they're in this process of telling people you have this. Now, of course, if you have Roku TV, yes, still can't watch it. And that but that's is, probably around the corner. One assumes it's around the corner because it's a ridiculous market of people who for whatever reason, they're content with alienating. Uh, and, you know, I still anytime I tweet about anything HBO Max related on Twitter, the immediate reaction is, is well, I have Roku TV, so I don't get it anyway. And that's not a very good way to encourage a uh, audience base. Uh, th this is this is just very interesting because it is a major blockbuster movie. And there is no way, as you said, that they will be able to make up that billion dollars of lost revenue. So what they're going to do is they're going to go, OK, well, how much will we actually be able to make worldwide off of it? If you look at Tenant, I would say probably a conservative estimate would be that Tenant did maybe a third of what it would have done under normal circumstances, give or take. 
Um, and so if you figure a billion dollars, maybe Wonder Woman 1984 does 400 million or 500 million worldwide, which if it had actually done that in a normal situation would have been a disaster. It would have killed the franchise. You never would have seen a third movie. Um, but now if it does that, then Warner Brothers goes, OK, we made that little pocket of money off of this. We made the little pocket that you mentioned to people actually subscribing $15 a piece. And then there's the long term game of people understanding that they have this service. And it is a very true thing that in terms of actual content, I have found myself much more frequently watching things on HBO Max than any other streaming service other than maybe Hulu in, in recent weeks slash months. They've got a bunch of great movies. They've got an impressive library of television, um, especially when you just factor in the HBO stuff, etc. So none of it matters that they haven't had maybe the breakout hit. So, well, OK, this will be a breakout. Um, they hope that the flight attendant will be a breakout. I'll talk about that later in Critics Corner. I think they hope that the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special that premiered this week is to some degree a breakout, that it gets that it moves the needle, that it gets people talking. And I think people will be talking about, you know, the the Aunt Viv's reunion and the tribute to James Avery and and all of that stuff. Um, and, I have, and don't forget, you've got the Friends reunion coming up probably first quarter next year. You do, except that was the thing that they were supposed to have at the beginning to actually get people to figure out that they had HBO Max. So that was supposed. So it's now. I mean, honestly, whatever they're going to pay for that Friends reunion now, I don't know what its value truly is at this point. Well, to me, it's it's keeping people engaged and keeping people on oh. the service. If you're going to sign up for on Christmas Day to watch Wonder Woman, you're going to keep it for the first couple months and hope maybe I mean, maybe you watch Big Bang Theory, maybe you watch Game of Thrones, maybe you watch all the other DC fair that are on the service or some of the DC original library titles from the CW or the DC universe stuff that's that's now on that platform. I mean, DC is a major, major cornerstone of HBO Max, and it really hasn't been marketed as such, at, at least from where my vantage point is. So but no, I they they have not done a good job with the rollout of this service, except for the fact that I think on the surface, it's a good service. And so I think I think they I think they probably know that that is a good thing to have, that, you know, as a baseline, if people come in, they will discover that there are movies that they want to watch, that there are TV shows that they want to binge and binge again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's it's the thing that all of these services are doing is is just to remind people of the business that they're in. And again, in this case, to remind people that they may already pay fifteen dollars a month for this service that they're not using. I mean, if you if you are an HBO cable subscriber, chances are fairly good. You will be able to simply get HBO Max for no additional money. And at that price, i.e. free or money you're already spending, it's a good deal. And you just you just can't put a value on it long term of making sure that people know this exists. And I think that is where Wonder Woman and this write off of probably hundreds of billions, you know, it, this this was in the ledger as a blockbuster. Now it is going to become something more complicated. And, you know, we'll see. But I know what yeah. I'm doing on Christmas Day, Christmas Day now. So that's nice. Most definitely. <laughs> Well, up second, we're going to keep talking about Warner Media, but in a different lane. Um, up next, it's the end of an era for Conan O'Brien. 
number two. This week, WarnerMedia announced that Conan's TBS late night show would wrap its 10-year run in June. It marks the end of a 28-year run for late night's longest tenured host when factoring in NBC's late night and, and the Tonight Show. And then after his TBS show ends in June, Conan will then segue to hosting a weekly variety series for HBO Max. Dan, it really is like when you think about how things went down with Conan and NBC, he's been here for 28 years and and just, you know, not really in the conversation the way that some of his other count, late night counterparts are. I think that Conan has ultimately had a much more interesting career than if he had simply had the linear career that he expected to. And I think that there's the one version of history, obviously, where Conan is still the host of The Tonight Show. And maybe he's doing a good show and maybe he isn't and it's hard to know. But I think that the the changing and evolving that he has had to do as a result of the ginormous NBC screw up in late night um, and the Jay Leno and all of that of that has been really, really strange and interesting and forward looking in a way that he never would have had to have been if he'd just been doing The Tonight Show every night when he just would have been doing The Tonight Show every night. He's had to he's had to figure out the digital terrain. He's had to figure out how to adjust Basically, the nightly show and nightly story he was telling, he's integrated all of these travel elements. He's he's expanded what he is as a talk show host. And he's had to change because he came in as the young Turk, as the wunderkind of whatever you want to say. He came in as the kid. He, he came in as as the guy who was shaking everything up with the absurdism and the surrealism and, you know, turning the late night world upside down, experimental, blah, blah, blah. And now he's he's the old man of the space. I mean, he's not an old man, but he's now the veteran of the space and he has had to shift who he is. And I think that probably, you know, for his bottom line and for his visibility, obviously the Tonight Show mess was obviously not for the best. There's no question. He left a lot of money on the table by what went down there. Uh, but I think he I think he's a, a more interesting personality and a more aware personality in terms of what the, the industry is. And I don't think he's really done. And I don't think that a weekly variety show on HBO Max is going to be the be all and end all of where Conan O'Brien's career is going from here. And so I I find him I find him fascinating and he was always interesting. He's always been smart and more aware than most people in the room. And this is just another step of that. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely worth noting that Conan had a year left on his current deal, meaning the TBS show could have gone on to an 11th season. It was obviously not a highly rated show. I mean, it's hard to say anything on linear is, is highly rated right now. Um, obviously, it had had trouble breaking through. Um, it was downsized not too long ago from an hour to 30 minutes. And, you know, look, he's, you know, former Warner Media and TBS chief Kevin Riley was a huge Conan loyalist. And, you know, the HBO Max show, to me, it's interesting because it, it marks an attempt by the new Warner Media regime to try its hand in the variety space where we know Netflix has kind of failed and struggled. So not necessarily failed, but has struggled. They've They've obviously made some great shows that have not been 
as long lasting as I think anyone would have hoped. But it, it's it's fascinating. You know, look, you mentioned the the travel shows Conan that, that Conan does. Those were an offshoot and part of the big larger deal that Conan had with Warner Media. Those will continue on TBS. But it's an interesting risk to see HBO Max take this step in a space where they don't know how they're going to succeed. Um, and, but it is a, probably, I would imagine, a cost savings one, because when you've got a show that's 10 years old, you've got other fees and salaries that, that go up and over the years. And now you've got a new attempt that is weekly instead of nightly. So, yeah, there, there's definitely some cost savings there. And yeah, I think, you know, to your point, it'll be very interesting to see where Conan goes next, considering how he has adapted faster than I think more of his traditional late night counterparts have. And, and I think we're seeing it with all of the the personalities, you know, you see what David Letterman, what his I don't want to say last act of his career has been, but his his post late night prominence act has been. And it's been a, a Netflix show that I don't know, I guess some people talk about, uh, but I don't want to go so far as to say it's a a wild success, but it's it's interesting. Whenever I watch an episode of the Letterman Netflix show, I feel like, OK, He's a good interviewer. There, there's some good content here, so that's fine. And I think that that's one way of doing this. And I don't think that I don't think the Letterman has the desire to hustle in the same way that I think Conan probably will. I think Conan has years left to do one or two more big things to do to shake things up in one or two big ways. So we'll see. Number three. Up third. It's now becoming a. All too regular segment where we try desperately to unpack the week's various executive shifts, the comings and goings. And it is here that I, as ever, take a step back and let Leslie ride the executive carousel. Yeah, stop us if you've heard this before, but it was another bananas week on the executive carousel. Um, and a lot of it was at NBC Universal. So we've been talking about what's been going on at that company as they've restructured back in August. So no longer do they have individual network executives, right? NBC doesn't have an entertainment president. There's no president of USA and sci-fi and so on. And they hired Susan Rovner from Warner Brothers to oversee the entire entertainment content group. So that includes streamer Peacock, NBC, USA, Sci-Fi, Bravo, Oxygen, E, etc. And this week, what she did was she installed her heads of the major departments. So they have a new head of scripted. This is Lisa Katz. She previously was overseeing all of NBC's scripted ventures alongside Tracy Pacosta. Lisa Katz now gets that big job. She expands her purview. Not only does she have the broadcast network, but Peacock and all the other cable brands. They promoted from within and tapped Oxygen's Rod Asa and NBC's Jenny Groom to split unscripted between Lifestyle and docuseries, which Rod Asa was doing with shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And Jenny Groom gets all of the bigger tentpole stuff like The Voice and America's Got Talent. Then they've um, beyond that, then you've got other heads of of late night, et cetera. But basically everyone came from within the NBCU family. And the, the bigger piece is that, you know, Katz is a notable pick because she oversaw all things scripted for NBC. And as I mentioned, Tracy Picosta this week now also, she has left NBC and has gone over to Netflix reuniting with Bella Bahara as and serving as head of comedy for the streamer. So You've got Netflix now with 
at least two of its top executives coming from the NBC fold. And now you're basically saying all of these people that have been doing great work across the scripted and the unscripted space are now the key leaders of Susan Rovner's team. One name that was notably absent is Bill McGoldrick, the highly regarded head of originals at Peacock, USA and Sci-Fi. He has chosen to leave the company. It's a big blow for them. He helped curate Peacock's first slate and greenlit shows like the upcoming Battlestar Galactica from Sam Ismail, the Saved by the Bell update, and worked on USA hits like Mr. Robot. Um, he went up for the Susan Rovner job, very interested in keeping in the streaming space, didn't get it, and there was no room left for him with Rovner's structure. So it's a big bummer because he is a very talented exec with good taste who and a great track record and good relationships across the town. But you're still looking at a great team under Rovner with someone like Lisa Katz. Jenny Groom has been a rising star there as well. So yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting on that space. And then as part of all of this stuff, you know, Frances Berwick, who oversees all the business side at NBCU, she previously had her leadership team with, with execs in like areas like marketing and research and so on. They just had a big round of layoffs and another round of layoffs will be coming early next year. Once Rovner has had a better, you know, more time to meet the other people on her teams. And now that her, her newly installed genre leaders will set their team. So what it means is in addition to someone like Lisa Katz, who's going to oversee scripted for Peacock, an area that she's not touched before, all of the execs from the, from various cable brands are going to be asked to expand their purview to not just the one network that they were working on, but all of them. So there's a lot of redundancies and that's, those are the people that are going to be laid off. So lots coming there. Meanwhile, Beatrice Springborn, who spent the last six years curating originals at Hulu, including The Handmaid's Tale, made the leap to NBC Universal and is replacing Don Olmsted as president of Universal Content Productions. So that's the studio that report, who reports into Perlina Igbakwe. So Perlina has made quick work replacing herself with Aaron Underhill at Universal Television and another woman, Beatrice Springborn, replacing Don Olmsted, overseeing the cable and streaming focused studio at NBCU. So lots going on at NBCU, but it also feels like maybe we cannot talk about what's going on there until maybe next year. So, but yeah, it's uh, it, super, uh, it, it's, there's, it's super interesting if you're someone who kind of lives in these development weeds like me, but uh, in terms of what this means for the average TV viewer, it means you've got a team that has already been successful at NBC in various sectors like, you know, Lisa Katz worked on shows like Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, for example. You know, that's kind of her taste where you can kind of see. And it'll be interesting to see how this all works out. So you've got the people who have been doing and know what the NBCU brands are now expanding. And obviously, you know, Francis Berwick, as we've seen with some of the announcements like the uh, the Tiger King show with Kate McKinnon, that's going to going to launch on a lot of different linear networks and then feed into Peacock. Peacock is the priority. All these other things are just icing on the cake. So Phew. now, if Phew. you would if yeah. you would like to get a little bit more of a flavor for some of the personalities involved here, I would remind you that back last June, back when people used to go places and do things, uh, we sat down with Lisa Katz and Tracy Picosta at the ATX TV Festival in Austin and had a really good chat with them. You can find that in our uh, live episode, which is episode 25, 25. If you're keeping score at home. So that was a long time ago. It was one of the first episodes where we had guests, really. So 
anyway, it's a it's a good conversation with them and it will actually give you some of the personalities of the people involved. And I assume we are going to be talking much more about executive shifts in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, I made a list just for fun of some of the major executives who have either gotten promoted, been pushed out or let go, et cetera. And it's over 40. And that's just off the top of my head. It's been a crazy year. And if like I've said this before on the show, but if you want to get an idea of how much our industry is changing, look no further than the executive turmoil that has been on the TV side of 2020. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guest this week is Moises Zamora, creator and showrunner of Selena the Series, Netflix's biography of the life of the Tejano music superstar. Before this project, Zamora wrote for the third season of ABC's American Crime, as well as Fox's Star. Welcome to the podcast, Moises. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you. So getting started... Talk us through the origin story of, of Selena. Had this been a story that, that you wanted to tell and how did you wind up you know, getting connected with the show? Absolutely. Well, you know, I grew up with Selena. I was part of like every quinceanera and witty that, you know, we, my family ever attended. Uh, so she was definitely part of my life. And I was in high school when she passed. So she's that sort of beacon of light that uh, represents that Mexican-American dream come true. Uh, however, um, I actually came across the project uh, through... Um, something else that I was myself pitching. I had gotten the rights for the world's youngest psychologist, this Mexican 13-year-old girl, basically, you know, genius, spoke a lot of languages. So I was trying to, I'm still, you know, in that process, but uh, trying to create a series about that. And um, my former agents at, you know, at CAA, they just saw that I was already putting on my producer hat and uh, uh, trying to set up projects on my own. So they, uh, they uh, had me meet the Campanario team, the producers, who um, had the rights to Selena Quintanilla's life story. And, uh, you know, it was uh, when I got that call and that potential meeting, it was an incredible sort of feeling, you know, because uh, she was, it has been very important to me as a, this Mexican-American role model. And so I just, I worked so hard for that meeting. <laughs> um, I spent uh, the whole week I had basically uh, researching, finding things that I didn't know about her and her family. And so when the meeting came, not only I sold myself and the perils of my life with their life, but uh, also the vision for the show. And it turned out to be a two and a half hour meeting. Um, and usually that's not recommended, right? Like that's not, you should not do that. <laughs> but it was wonderful because, you know, we connected and we were on the same page about making this story inspirational, wholesome for the whole family. Just show a different kind of a, a journey, you know, that we're not used to seeing when Mexican-American representations on screen. And so, you know, the next day I had gotten the job, I was attached to the project and, um, 
and then I you know, worked on the pitch deck and uh, pitched it to the family lawyer, then the family in Corpus Christi, and uh, Netflix just, you know, took it, uh, got it out of the market. They understood the value. They understood what we're trying to do, and they supported our vision, and here we are. Now, what year did this all take place? When was this all happening? This was 2018. This came together fast. Ah, yes. It's pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> Now, at that point, was the family already concerned about the Telemundo Selena project that was coming out because they were very outspoken about it when it premiered? But did they have awareness that there was this other project that was not telling the authorized version of Selena's story? Yeah, they were. And that's why I feel like they responded to this version of it, which is a wholesome, inspirational, focuses on their struggles and overcoming them and Additionally, um, you know, uh, 90, 80, 80 to 90% it's in English because they're from South Texas. They're second and third generation Mexican-American. And that to, to them was very, very important because it showed a level of authentic, um, you know, approach to their story. So talk us through what feedback the fam that you, that you got from the family. Like, were there things that, that were important to them to see in the show that you weren't planning on or and vice versa? You know, frankly, I think it was more of an editing because I wanted to tell everything about them and Selena because I think there's so much story there. We compiled like pages and pages of obscure articles that we gather from Texas, you know, that are not available on the Internet. We went to the University of San Marcos. We uh, approach, you know, Corpus Christi and uh so there was a lot there that I wanted to tell, but, you know, we only had a few, <laughs> 35 minutes to 40 minutes per episode. So and we had to get to, you know, the, the story that everybody knows. But, uh, you know, it was they brought to the story those anecdotes, those emotional moments that no newspaper could write about. Uh, some um, details that they still uh, haven't shared with people, that they felt it was important. So it was more about how to fit it all in there, uh, but at the same time, you know, not overwhelm the audience. So we focused on what, what was important for them and also what made sense for the story structure. Can you just give us one example of one of those pieces that is new, that, that viewers who love Selena, you know, and music lovers may not know about her? that is reflected in your show. Absolutely. There's, you know, a lot of those anecdotes that you see in the show are definitely like it did, did happen. So we dramatized them in the best way possible. But for example, the way she, she got her name, you know, it uh, they were actually they had a name picked out for a boy, but they did not have a name picked out for a little girl. So when they found themselves without a name, they basically got the name of a lady that uh, also was in the same room that Marcella was in after she gave birth. And she had the opposite problem. She had a girl name uh, and she ended up having a boy. So they switched names. And uh, that's how she actually got the name Selena Quintanilla. And, uh, you know, uh, Abraham uh, and Marcella, uh, you know, wanted to find out what Selena really meant. And it's the Greek word for moon goddess and that... Uh, and it's just stayed. And that's actually how she got her name. So those little moments that, you know, uh, 
to just make this, I think, story a lot richer and a lot of people to just be like, yes, that really did happen. And uh, uh, hopefully they'll, you know, uh, especially with the outfits, you know, and some of the performances that we recreated, um, hopefully they'll get to see that we tried our best to replicate that. I'm curious how you figured out what the right structure was for this, the right episode length, how many episodes you needed to tell the story, et cetera, sort of how, where you found the right length for this project. It was, you know, I knew that there was going to be three significant parts to their journey. One of them is sort of like when they start, like the struggles, the early days when they were all kids, uh, which is mostly from the POV of the parents, right? Because they have to make these really difficult decisions when they're not doing too well as a family. You know, they have to live with the with the brother and, and, and in one bedroom. And so I think that was really important because I think that instilled that kind of uh, uh, those kind of set of values that essentially uh, Selena embraced throughout her life, just working really hard, showing up on stage, uh, constantly learning and educating herself. And we really wanted to take a moment to live there because, um, you know, the brother, it's the compo composer and producer of all most of her hits. You know, the, the sister was the best friend, but also the drummer. And everyone played a really vital role in the making of the superstar. And so that was I, I knew that that was going to be the first sort of part of this series. And then as she comes of age and then she starts to grow into her own womanhood and she chooses to fall in love with someone that she's not supposed to. And what that, you know, the consequences of that and how that sort of creates conflict in the family or even perhaps, you know, endangers her career and her path. And uh, and of course, the later part um, that a lot of more, more people are familiar with, which is like how she was the superstardom. Uh, superstar and how she not only uh, embraced the, you know her music and the different sort of aspects of, of of her music, but also she was an entrepreneur. You know, she started her fashion line and uh, set up boutiques, and uh, is one of the early artists that really saw uh, the potential of a three sixty approach to you know to being a, a singer you know by having all these other elements to her the fact that she had a perfume line you know or like she was gonna in the, in the, i don't think we ever got to i'm not quite sure i have to double check on that but i'm not sure she, the actual perfume did come out but uh she was already like looking at scents and trying to find her what what specific scent like you know represented her as a human being so um we knew that there was almost like a three kind of act structure to the entire series that we wanted to to explore. And so this is not a show that that is going to get a second season, for example. Like it was, it's, it's all it's a limited series in, in the, the purest definition of, of that. Yes, uh, there will be. Uh, I mean, I don't I'm actually I, do, I cannot confirm <laughs> how many more episodes we're getting uh, or um, so I, you don't have to talk to Netflix about that. But yes, that's the idea. You know, uh, the first uh, batch is nine episodes and it follows their life all the way to the moment when when Chris comes into their lives and Chris Perez being the uh, the husband. I'm curious about the starting point, because there's obviously the version of this story that begins with her death. And you clearly didn't want this to lead as a story about about a young woman who died. You you wanted to start somewhere different. So how did you choose what you wanted as your in media race opening for the entire series to be? I wanted to focus on the American dream of it all. 
You know, the the idea that she's on the brink of success and then go back to how that success took many years in the making and all the way to her, you know, when she's little and, and her father discovers her, her talent and how they built that. Uh, because... I, you know, clearly, you know, the fans and everyone that is familiar with her story, like, knows that tragic ending to her life. But I think it was important to show why it's just impacted the Latino world, you know, because I think when the when she passed, if you go back to 1995, a lot of people that weren't familiar with her and her music were kind of surprised about how how many people were really reactively with heartbreak collectively in the United States, in Latin America. And a lot of people were not familiar of that impact, you know, before her death. And I wanted to take the time to show how we got there, how she affected millions and millions of people in America. You know, they did the hard work. They, they were on the road constantly from Texas to Idaho to Michigan to Washington DC they did it there were show show and and that's how they built that sort of fan base that with the time when she passed it was an incredible heartbreak and it really reverberated across the world so um I wanted to show that why and where it came from and focus on the the positivity and the optimism that her story of hard work and determination represents for everyone yeah. And, you know, with the family so involved in, in this show, what kind of access um, did they give you in terms of perhaps giving you early recordings or, you know, or, or things like that? And, and maybe can it talk a little bit about the, the access to the, to Selena's music that you had here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was very uh, important for everyone to be able to showcase Selena's music, their music, um, you know, from starting from the early days to the current, you know, to the most current stuff that she uh, released. Um, and, uh, in, you know, we're happy to say that uh, Selena's voice will be featured and the original music. And, um, and there will be some acapella versions with Christian Serratos and some of the cast members. So that was incredible that we had that opportunity to do that. And, um, but yes, earlier recordings that feature little Selena, you know, um, we were, we got to um, spend a whole week in Corpus Christi, just getting all that information, talking to the family, checking out those recordings. I mean, Abraham has them available all the time and she's just listens to those early sort of recordings that he and only, he's the only one that has them. And, um, and also, you know, they have this, uh, museum there where they have you know costumes or awards a lot of things that you could just check out and there's even some early sort of fashion designs that she had sketched out when she was a teenager and some of the things that are not in the museum that i got to see for example were actual journal entries and writings of her like trying to do some a couple of lyrics here and there uh, working out songs, doodles. I think that I, I ended up checking out a whole page of her practicing her signature, you know, which I think it, I just found it so charming. And it, of course, as a teenager, of course you would practice your signature, you know, especially when people are asking for it all over the place. And I thought that was just uh, so lovely. And I just felt so grateful and honored to be actually holding a piece of paper where I could see her, her writing as a teenager that it's just so relatable. 
Uh, it's so it's so clear how much she meant to you and just the the feeling that that and love that and admiration that you put into the show, which I think, you know, is reflected. You know, it's it's a very earnest show for anyone who who doesn't know about her. It, it comes off as almost just like a real family drama or, you know, episode length, notwithstanding. But like, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about why? you know, that was so important to you to really just make this connect to not just fans of hers, but to a larger audience. Well, I think that, you know, frankly, the the tone of the show, uh, wholesome and earnest, it, uh, you know, it's kind of foreign to me because uh, I come from, you know, American crime, very you know, human trafficking, very deep, dark drama. And then you have, um, you know, the last show before this was uh, Lee Daniels star, and which is a different, you know, type of drama. Um, and so uh, the thing that, 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 you know, that I always really proposed and everyone was on board with it is just to have this, you know, inspiring story, this wholesome approach for the whole family. Because, you know, Selena uh, is a role model, not just for like 10 year olds today, but also those, you know, those that got to know her while she was alive. I mean, my aunts went to her shows, you know, and Reno. So it was just that she really made an impact on a lot of people. But um, this wholesome, earnest uh, approach was because as I did, um, you know, the more research I did, especially from interviews of, of people of, uh, of her time, they it really she was a very genuine, kind, compassionate, sweet individual that treated everyone with respect. You know, you, the, we understand that there is the pop star persona that artists like must sort of give to the world. And then there's the real person. And what I discovered about Selena is that she carried her personal values onto the stage. She treated people kindly and everybody loved her, you know, for that, because she was real. She wasn't fake. She was transparent. She was kind. She was lovely. And so that 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 needed to be represented in the tone and approach to the show that um, those values were were real. You know, and um, it, it, she made herself available to her fans. I mean, she never left that working class neighborhood, no matter how big she was getting. And she was, of, of course, making plans later on in life to build a home for her husband and her future family. But um, but, you know, she made herself available to anybody in a, in a kind, grateful manner because she knew that uh, that was, you know, the fan base was important. They That's who uh, they showed up to those shows and made them, you know, um, the, the family succeed, you know, despite all the challenges they faced. Well, just generationally, because I must have watched this movie about 20 times when I was a kid. <laughs> the, to- the tone reminded me several times of uh, Luis Valdez's La Bamba, uh, because sort of a similar embrace of a cultural icon. Is, th- is that a touchstone you-, you worked with at all, or is that not a movie we talk about 30 years later as much? I love La Bamba. I, uh, it really also resonated with me and also uh, my parents' generation. You know, because I, I feel it, very old right now. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I was a kid and, you know, it was like when that came on, it's like, it, it's part of our lives. We like, we hit the dance floor and my tias and aunts, they were like, come on, you know, 10 years old. I don't have anyone to dance with, but you're the one, you know. So I, I, I definitely was the one dancing for with them. And it is a touchstone and it, it represents that sort of Mexican-American presence in the United States, you know, and how we've contributed to the culture and to American history. And uh, that's exactly that's exactly sort of a continuation of that feeling, that continuation of that sort of contribution to to our culture. You mentioned the language issue, and Selena was born in Texas. English was her first language. And yet the first couple episodes are very much about how she found her voice in this language that she didn't know. What was your approach to how much Spanish you wanted to be this be in this and where you wanted to use it strategically? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to uh, be really um, true to her journey and the family and how they, uh, you know, communicated. Um, for the family, it was very important to show a story in which they talked to each other in mostly English, because that's how it happened and that's how she grew up with that. And um, But also, uh, you know, show the fact that like she was a quintessential American teen. You know, she was listening to Jody Watley, Janet Jackson. She was of the times. And those hairdos and outfits were of the time. And um, she was not shy about that. <laughs> and so we wanted to definitely present her as an American teen first as she slowly discovers um, that other um, cultural part of hers um, when she needs to learn to, you know, to sing in Spanish and speak in Spanish in order to, you know, um, be able to uh, cater to an audience that was mostly migrant workers, uh, temporary migrant workers, because they would chase sort of that those uh, seasons throughout, um, you know, in the entire United States. So, uh, and, and, and how that it opened up her world and her understanding of her identity as Mexican and American and how um, that is also a very American thing, you know, and, and it's part of the fabric of, of our country. Uh, a Mexican-American dream coming true is an American story. Well said. You know, l let's talk a little bit about about casting here. So Christian Storados not exactly a household name, but she is, you know, well known from the world of The Walking Dead, which is obviously one of the biggest shows on the planet and grew up on a Nickelodeon show. Can you talk a little bit about why she was the right person for the part? Well, first and above all is that she's just extremely talented and charismatic and professional. And she, uh, you know, which is going to Ultimately, this kind of role is it's so much pressure, right? You need someone at that with that caliber to uh, really do it justice. And um, but additionally, you know, I met Christian over lunch shortly after it was announced um, and back in uh, late 2018. It was just sort of like a meeting that uh, uh, a friend of my partner's introduces to actually a fashion designer that dresses her. It was just like, you know, Latino to Latino, you know, get to know each other. But she did show up with red lipstick and her hair pulled back. So she was channeling Selena already. And when I got to know her over lunch and, you know, beside the fact that I was already a fan of her work on The Walking Dead is that she also had that um, genuine spark and that sort of... Uh, sincerity and light and, and sort of kindness that came across and it's just she's just a lovely person and um 
just like, wow, wow, she just got that charm, you know, that Selena charm. Uh, let's take a bunch of selfies and, uh, you know, let's send it to the producer and see what they think. And um, ultimately, of course, like, you know, the producers, casting director, we all had agreed that um, she was great, but that we needed to do the work, right? Uh, go through the casting process again to make sure that every you know rock is turned and 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 because this is this is a really important role, and but you know Christian worked so hard for it and she put 150 percent of it. She's passionate and determined and so talented that like by the time that you know the audition process was coming to an end you know, towards those final auditions, she was making people cry in that room. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had my eyes like, you know, tear up because it's just her, the powerful performance that she was evoking was, it's just, you know, there was, it was a no brainer. Um, she, she, she earned that role. Well, one of the things that people do talk about, though, with La Bamba is that Lou Diamond Phillips, as great as he is in that movie, is is Filipino and, and Native American. Were there any concerns about Christian being half Italian? Was that a thing that mattered to anyone or about her being, you know, let's be honest, a few years older than Selena was when she passed away? Yeah, I mean, I think there was that sort of conversation. But, uh, you know, the fact that Jennifer Lopez of Puerto Rican descent basically made us fall in love with Selena and kind of um, uh, just kind of you know, proved the point that, you know, if, if, if you got it and if you can uh, channel this Mexican-American icon, then, um, then you know, you should, you should play the role. But, uh, you know, we were definitely sensitive to the idea. I'm, I, I'm very sensitive to Mexican representation. Uh, being as most authentic as possible and, and uh, you know, writing stories about us, uh, having actors play, uh, you know, that, that share that heritage, you know. Um, but uh, it, we wanted to make sure that we got the right, you know, uh, person for it first and then, you know, figure out uh, what, what, what we had to deal with as far as, like, you know, her her background but you know uh she was um she's just 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 inspiring when she she auditioned and so it was it was not very difficult to agree on her the family approved her she they knew also that you know she was great and you know she was a, she was a little older when selena passed away but um Selena looked a lot more mature than 23 years old. <laughs> I almost like, I never, I forget that she was young. Um, and at 23, I, I was not near as responsible as she was. You know, let me tell you something. I was not, the, I was not, I did not have had that drive. Um, and so I, I, I almost, I feel like uh, Christian being a, just a, a tad older was beneficial because it it centered her and it, it it really she was able to capture that maturity that Selena was already um, exuding at that young age of 23 years old. This would have been your first time putting together a writing staff. So what was that process like? What pool did you did you find your writers in and how easy or hard was it to find the people who you wanted to be writing on this show? You know, I had um you know, with the producers and with Netflix on board, they they were really open to having a Latinx writers room, and um, and you know, being 
cis male myself, um, as much as I put glitter on sometimes, like I, I knew that I couldn't, you know, uh, 100% do justice to this powerful Latina. And uh, so the majority of the room was uh, Latina women and uh, from different backgrounds as far as like generational or, uh, you know, ethnic when it came to uh uh, not just Mexican Americans, for example, and and so that to me was really important. And also, um, the, the two directors that uh, took on the entire uh, limited series are also women directors, uh, Latinas, and so there was never kind of a question about sort of compromising that. And um, so I feel very lucky and you know grateful and so that we were supported in that in that way by the producers and and, and Netflix. So. Um, but, you know, in having that kind of team and that uh, had an emotional connection with Selena um, and because she affected all of us in a different way, you know, they brought in 150 percent to the show and it was very passionate. And it uh, when we got to certain moments, we had to check ourselves as like, holy crap, we get to write this story. And, and it, it became really emotional, especially because when we were listening to recordings and we could hear her basically breathe you know and that 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 made an impact on everyone and i think that she was so inspiring to the point that that you know it's just without me asking people put everything in in on, on in this show and and, it, and and i'm proud of that and and, and that and that's the power of, of this story and what is the plan in the next month in terms of outreach to Latinx publications and uh, and Latinx journalists? And and from your perspective, what is the importance of making sure that this gets to Latinx critics to review? Well, I think uh, Netflix has been an incredible partner with that. They're definitely reaching out um, across the board, even in Spanish language, because Selena made an impact in Latin America and she is uh, great and, you know, she's highly beloved there. And so there is a huge effort to make sure that everyone, especially Latinx critics, get a chance to review this story, get a chance to be able to relate to this story. I myself have already spoken to uh, a few. <laughs> I think you guys are my fourth. <laughs> so, uh, and, and for the most part, they all have been uh, Latinx critics and journalists uh, taking a look at this and being able to uh, ask specific questions that perhaps, you know, I, I take for granted, you know, uh, as a Mexican-American. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You do get that. Um, and, and that's important because um, uh, there's not a lot, as you know, Latinx representation in front or behind the camera right now. And I think this is just uh, a humble little project that will... Uh, be shared with everyone, but with the intention that, you know, we too can can have this wholesome, earnest, you know, a dream of, of, of being someone. And and uh, instead of just being depicted in, in very criminal, extreme, cartel-like ways, <laughs> which, you know, I also watch those shows. They're fantastic. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm all about the dark drama. But, um but you know the 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 balance of that is there are shows like this you know that uh, give a different kind of voice and a different kind of light on, on, on stories that that make a difference for those ten year olds to those you know eight year old little girls um, and uh, and that's I think that's why this this 
this series is so special. So you mentioned at the top of the interview that you are developing other things, but now that you have your first time serving as a showrunner, you know, that you've completed that mission, what are the next projects that you're looking to develop? What else are you, how else are you looking to tell stories about Mexican-Americans? Um, and just to clarify, I was a co-showrunner in this, um, in this uh, project. But uh, to answer your question, yes, I think this really opened my eyes to the possibilities, right? To create authentic, uh, genuine stories about the Latinx experience. So um, knowing that I've hustled, that I've already uh, uh, created opportunities for myself, I'm going to, I took that a little bit, you know, further and I've started a production company with two individuals, two executives, uh, Zone One Productions, with the intention of creating, producing uh, authentic stories about people of indigenous, Afro-Latin, and Latin American descent with global appeal. Because I learned that it is possible to do it with Selena, and I want to keep on doing that and just offering more opportunities for the stories to be told. And so um, right now, I do have a couple of projects in the works that I cannot yet <laughs> disclose, uh, but hopefully soon, um, you know, from... And also, I'm like genre agnostic. I think from making the John from American Crime to Selena, I think now, it, you know, I, I'm game for anything. <laughs> so there is half hour, uh, you know, dramedies in the works, an animated series, um, as well as, um, uh, you know, a couple of podcasts that we are developing. So we are excited about, uh, you know, all the possibilities, uh, you know, from horror to sci-fi that depict that Latinx point of view in a very authentic way. Have you guys signed um, an overall deal anywhere? I because <laughs> <laughs> when you say global appeal obviously selena is a show with with tremendous global appeal and you're definitely on the right platform for that but it, it, it would it seems like netflix may be a good home for that oh uh, well 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 leslie let's just uh wait and see <laughs> <laughs> That is that a story I would happily write sometime when it's ready. <laughs> that last suggests that there is certainly an answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we always do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? I have been watching and enjoying. Well, I, I guess I do. I'm like not a genre. I'm, uh, like I'm all over the place, but um uh, frankly, um, uh, the British Bake Off. <laughs> I just need sweets in my life right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really loved um, Raised by Wolves. Uh, just because, um, you know, uh, those, you know, sci-fi worlds really are very appealing to me. Uh, so I, I just finished that. And I really absolutely adored uh, Lovecraft Country. I just thought that, like, bringing forth social justice issues at that manner um, and, and in, in a horror genre uh, was uh, brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've had such a great time. The first part of Selena the Series premieres on Netflix on December 4th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Animaniacs on Hulu, the new Saved by the Bell on Peacock, and The Flight Attendant on HBO Max. Dan, what you got? 
I mean, talk about a what is old is new week, and that's not even getting into the aforementioned uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion on HBO Max, which I expect many people will be talking about. Uh, Yeah, lots and lots of rebooting. And of course, the first episode of Animaniacs is all about reboot culture. Um, I was a fan of Animaniacs back when it aired in the 90s, and I know many, many people were. I think I might have been more of a fan of Tiny Toons, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the new version is good, not great. I I thought it was a little bit disappointing in the sense that it really did kind of feel padded. The episodes here are between 24 and 26 uh, minutes, which is longer than they were back in the day. And it's a very weird feeling to be actually glancing at your watch during a segment of either, you know, either the Warner siblings or Pinky and the Brain, et cetera, to be going, this feels a little long. And I don't think you should be doing that. And I don't think that it necessarily behooved the show to have no particular limitations in terms of running time. Uh, and yet there are still things that I laughed at in every episode. The songs are generally and consistently catchy and hilarious. And I am always happy to sit and watch Pinky and the Brain attempt once again to take over the world, uh, just maybe at a minute or two less per segment. Uh, just a minor annoyance that that I don't know why they wouldn't just do what they do. But oh, well, that's also partially what comes from having a writing and production team that for the most part is not the team from the original show. But so it goes. It is perfectly entertaining. Just a minor disappointment. Uh, Saved by the Bell, you should definitely go back to last week's podcast and listen to our interview with Tracy Wigfield, who is the showrunner of the new Saved by the Bell. And I think she does a very good job in that interview of expressing what they're trying to do on the new series. I would say, however, that based on the three episodes I've watched, I'm not completely sure that they're succeeding to do what she thinks they're trying to do, because... It's an interesting balancing act because basically what they're doing is they're trying to blend two things that don't inherently go together. The artificial sitcom-y world of Bayside High, which is still very much unchanged from the original series, and a more grounded, more realistic high school series, while all the at the same time going for an audience that is probably primarily going to be adults and young adults who know Saved by the Bell as an original series. So it it doesn't really come together in the three episodes that have been sent to critics. There are occasional chuckles. There are occasional things where I said, okay, that's a good idea. I would like to see where they go with that. Um, I, I think Tracy Wigfield is extremely talented. She was obviously a great writer on 30 Rock. I think the great news on NBC was a an underrated show. It was an inconsistent show qualitatively, but I thought in the balance, it was a very, very funny show. If I had to guess, this is a show that will probably get better as it goes along. I I would personally, though, like to, I would like to see less of the original actors, frankly. I, I, you know, I, I don't think that they're all that great and I don't think the show needs them. So, yeah, I I don't know. It's uh it's it's not successful yet, but maybe it could be. Um in terms of a better example of a show realizing its potential and doing the thing it's trying to do, 
I, I really enjoyed the four episodes of The Flight Attendant that I've seen. It is, uh, in my review, I described it as a, a, a beach read or an airplane read. It, it's designed to be fairly disposable. It is a stylish, sexy murder mystery without being extremely violent or extremely sexual. It's it's probably a little PG-13-y. What I compared it to in my review was kind of the blue sky days of USA. I, I think it's a little bit like White Collar. I think it's a little bit like Burn Notice. It's it's in that vein. Uh, Kaylee Cuoco is the star and also the producer, and she brought the property to HBO Max. And you understand why. It's It's a good vehicle for her. And she, for whatever reason, never really got the credit she deserved for why Big Bang Theory worked as well as it did when it worked as well as it did. And she was really funny, really game. And when she needed to be on that show, she was emotional also in ways that grounded the show. And I think if you look at the show, the show was bad when it treated her as basically a An sex object. object. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which it did, which it did for, I would say, the first season and a half minimum. But then when it said, oh, OK, she can actually be a funny actress, it became a much better show. This is just a good star vehicle for her. It is it is built around her. She carries it. She makes it funny when she needs to. She sells the emotion. She's really good. So, yeah, it's it's not substantive. It's not deep, but it's entertaining. And I can see how there's a lot of value in that. And I found myself really just enjoying watching it. So, yeah, so, so did I. I only got to the pilot. But and, and again, I say this is not a critic. <laughs> Um, my always my typical disclaimer, but I, you know, look, I, I loved Big Bang Theory from from start to finish. And I always thought that the women of Big Bang, Kaylee, Maya, Melissa, were what made the show into the big hit that it became in later seasons. And Kaylee in, in The Flight Attendant, I think, is just you don't want to take your eyes off of her because, and, and you also don't want to multitask when, when you're watching the show. Like I was captivated. It was, I don't want to look at another screen. I don't want to, you know, be cleaning up around the house with this on in the background or doing laundry, folding laundry or whatever. It was hold, it, it held my attention and it made me very excited to watch the next episode. And um, I think it's smart that HBO Max dropped the, the pilot for this early because people after the pilot are definitely going to want to come in and check it out. So that would require, an HBO Max subscription. So I think it, you know, this could, you know, hopefully I think, I don't know what I'm going to say here, but it feels like this could be a hit for HBO Max. So, and we'll never know what kind of hit it is, but I definitely think there's an audience for it. I, th I think that there should be an audience for it. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to kind of enjoy the escapism of it. I think it, I think it succeeds at that. Um, also premiering this week and not so escapist, but our wonderful colleague Ingu Kang really, really enjoyed it, is the HBO documentary take on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, Between the World and Me, which I have not watched yet because I've been too busy watching 850 other things. Uh, but Ingu really enjoyed it and so and, and thought that it was one of the best examples of something made during the pandemic and with the logistical complications of the pa uh, pandemic that we've seen. So I will definitely watch it at some point uh, because Ingu's advice means a lot to me. So yeah, so that's another thing. <laughs> and you can read her review on THR.com. Indeed. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. 
This feels like a good place to wrap things up for the week. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It really does help spread the word of mouth, moves us up search engines, etc., etc., etc. We truly appreciate those words. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We're happy to get your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns. But if you have substantive questions, you should email us for future mailbag segments at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. We'll be back next week with something. We're still hammering out what exactly it is, but we're not going to leave you hanging for next week. We promise. So keep an eye out. It'll be out at your normal podcasting time. But until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. And happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.